And here's John writing under Jesus' authority and also his command to write to the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, etc., and Greek. Okay? So, what does in the spirit mean? The actual Hebrew is genomen en numah, in the spirit. So the Bible will help us try to understand what it means in this context. Have you ever heard let the Bible um, teach... Uh, What's that phrase? Interpret it. Let the, yeah, thanks, Bruce. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Okay, and that's what you can do. This phrase, in the spirit, appears everywhere. When you look at it, in the spirit, it's like one time, I think it said that um, Jesus came in the spirit into the temple. And you really have to study that. And it's the phrase, genomen and numah, in the spirit. Did the Holy Spirit lead him into the temple? In other words, did Jesus' actions were only determined by the Holy Spirit? So by the Holy Spirit, he moved them into the temple. It can mean he decided in his own mind to go to the temple. Or it could very well be he was moved by the Spirit, okay, to go to the temple. In other words, all of a sudden he was walking this way and said, hmm, I just feel I should go to the temple now. You, you, you know, something's going on. Intuition, okay? We can't grasp the exact meaning of it, okay? But something is going on, and it seems to be, it can be related to God in His Holy Spirit coming upon you, or it could be your own mind, okay, in the Spirit. You'll notice your Bible always capitalized, in the Spirit, capital S, meaning God, the Holy Spirit. See, in Greek, they don't do that. Greek has no capital letters. So we don't know if they mean the Holy Spirit or your own inclination. We don't know. Okay. However, in this context, let's study the phrase genomen and numa. And then I'll get back to the Lord's Day in a little bit. Because if we get this down and we come back to this, you'll see that indeed it makes a lot more sense that this has got nothing to do with Sunday worship. So, when you go to Revelation 4, 1 through 6, you, follow, you read this. Uh, Revelation uh, 4, 1 through 6, we read, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. And one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the th thrones were 24 elders. Okay? John's in heaven. Right? He's having a vision. Now, did the Holy Spirit give him a vision? You see what I'm saying? How you can say, in the Spirit? So maybe we could capitalize the S and say, in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is showing him a vision. Of what? Heaven! He's not praying in tongues. He's not having a charismatic experience. He's having a vision. Dang it! Okay, I mean, that's what it says. Let's take a look at another one. Revelation 17, 1 through 6. Revelation 17, 1 through 6, we read, 
Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and came and said to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit. Same thing, that, that phrase, uh, into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous things. What is he saying? It's a vision. Now, it could just mean in the spirit, because it's not capitalized in Greek. We capitalize it, all right? And that means your translators did it, because they're saying, the spirit did this. You cannot do that. There's, there, again, the translators are trying to put their own spin on the word. And that's what gets us all screwed up. We should uh, just completely eliminate. It could be the spirit. We don't know. It could be his own. It just could be a vision, all right? Just leave it as that. So again, here's the third verse. Revelation 21, 9 through 14. Revelation 21, 9 through 14, we read. Oops, a little sticky thing came off. Revelation 21, 9 through 14. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Oh, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's us. Okay. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God. That's a dream. Maybe not even a dream. Sorry. Vision. He's having a vision. All three instances of in the spirit, John is having a vision, and it's all related to what? The end of days. Right? It's related to the fact of Jesus' return. So now let's go back to Revelation 1, 9 through 10. So it only makes sense that when we're taking a look at in the spirit, okay, and then the events that happen, it seems to us that in the spirit is a vision. He's having a vision of the Lord's day. Or he's having a vision on the Lord's day. Now, people can say, oh, he's having a charismatic vision, okay? Holy Spirit's coming to him, he's speaking in tongues, and all of a sudden, what's happening? He sees something on the Lord's day. Really? Now let's take a look at the phrase, the Lord's day. Okay? If you're a Messianic Jew, and there were mostly Messianic Jews in every one of the seven churches. Those were synagogues, not churches, in Ephesus and Smyrna. He was talking to mostly, these were not Gentiles. There were Gentiles there, are you with me? But at this time when he's writing Revelation, the predominant group, ethnic group, in the church at that time was Jewish. Okay, that's a key. So if you're a Messianic Jew and you're trying to help your Gentiles because they haven't read the Old Testament, they don't even know what it is. They've got to come to the Jews and tell us about God's word because that's the only thing they had. So if you're a Messianic Jew, what do they know about the day of the Lord? Now, I'm not going to read these verses, but you can go to Isaiah 13. 9 through 11. This is, I'm going to give you a sample. Okay. 
Isaiah 13, 9-11, it talks about the end of days and the day of the Lord. The actual phrase that's used here in Revelation. Ezekiel 30, verses 1-4, through 4, read it. Okay, you can read actually all of Ezekiel 30. talks about the end of days, the battle before the Messiah comes, all of this, and it talks about the day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Matter of fact, do I have it in here? Yeah, I do. Let me read it. Malachi 4. I think this is the one that I wanted to read in the first place. Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Um, yeah. Remember the law of my servants Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day. It's the end of days. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 2. Got it right here. Now Paul's Jewish. He's writing to the Thessalonians. And he's writing to mostly Jews. Remember he came to the synagogue at Thessalonica and some of the Jews tried to kill him? They chased him all over Turkey. Okay, So he's writing back to many of those Jews and Gentiles. Don't get me wrong. But it's probably mostly Jews. And he's saying here, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 2, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware. He said, brothers. Who's his brothers? Jews. Jews. And the Gentiles, too. He'd probably include them as well. But he said, you're fully aware of the day of the Lord. It's in the Bible. They're fully aware of it. They know about it. It's been taught. It's Jewish eschatology. So it means the end of days, it's the return of the Messiah for us. For the Jews, they say this is the coming of the Messiah. So, and for instance, I'm quoting from the Encyclopedia Judaica. Okay? This is a secular Jewish source. Really good source. It's not free. Okay? It's not free. You have to pay significant amount of money to actually access this. Somebody gave it to me for free. I'm just so... That was just amazing. It took a group to Israel and I came back and um, uh, this guy said, see, I got a bunch of books in my garage somebody gave to me. I just wonder if you'd be interested. And I said, okay, I'll take a look at it. It'd be a complete encyclopedia Judaica. <laughs> Man. Anyway, but it says this. Uh, the day of the Lord is a definite, though undetermined, point of time in the future. When God is expected to punish the wicked and justice will triumph. The term day of the Lord serves as a key word in uh, nine prophetic, pr predictive passages. Uh, and it talks about Isaiah and Joel and Amos and uh, Obadiah and so on. It appears in some other uh, places in slightly varied form. The prominent feature of these passages is dramatic sense of doom underlined by a few characteristic motifs such as darkness and wailing. I won't read the rest of it because it goes into a lot more. So again, once again, putting the Bible in context shows the day of the Lord is not Sunday. Okay. Um, it's not when Christians did the Sabbath. So I can conclude this. In this series, and those of you on video, the video for this one, it was in August, uh, that we actually proved biblically, we proved it biblically, not my opinion, okay, that the Sabbath is the greatest and most important of all the Jews of God's festivals. That was Leviticus 23 where we started. 
And we, I, I know by your reactions, I remember that day, you were in a sense of awe. Because we say, wait a minute, we've never looked at the Sabbath that way? Because remember, the Sabbath has got nothing to do with you being here. Nothing. Sabbath is a 24-hour period of time, and one thing that you do is you have a special mikra hakodesh, a special meeting. Okay, God said you should have a special meeting. Okay, what are you going to do the rest of the time? You're supposed to remember him for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to practice this for 24 hours. It's huge. The other one we did, we took a look at some of the practices that they did in Jesus' day, and it helped us when we were talking about Rosh Hashanah. The third one is, where is Jesus in the Sabbath? John 5.39, Jesus says, all scripture testifies of me. He said it probably between 24 to 30 AD. If he says that, what's the only scripture they had? The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. So therefore, in the Torah, you have the Sabbath. Where is Jesus in the Sabbath? And that, again, was a sense of awe. A sense of, wow. So the Bible, when studying it in its historical context, supports God's Sabbath as commanded in Torah and the way it's been practiced for thousands and thousands of years by Israel. And God meant what he said. I'm going to go to Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17. Listen to this. If this is not for you, if you're saying the Old Testament's not for you, and Jesus says, John 5.39, that all the scriptures testify of me, and the only scripture they had was the Old Testament, you know what you're saying? Jesus is a liar. Be careful. You need to really grasp this. This is for us. This is God speaking. Who's Jesus, by the way? Jesus is God. How many gods are there? Here's God's word. Genesis. Uh, Genesis. Exodus 31, 12 through 17. And the Lord, meaning Adonai, which is the cover for yud heh vav -Hey. yud heh vav -Hey is there. Okay? Not Adonai, not Lord. That's what it's actually in the Hebrew. And yud heh vav -Hey said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, listen to this, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. As an aside, if some of you actually access, as I mentioned, I've got a link on there, Samuel Bakyoki's book, 
from Sabbath to Sunday, historical investigation of the rise of Sunday observance in early Christianity. <coughs> the word that I just said to you, that was the word of God. The early church fathers, and I'm talking about Origen, Justin Martyr, and others. You know what they said of the Jewish people? That the Sabbath was given to them as a curse because they killed Jesus. The Old Testament and all the laws were given to them as a curse because they killed Jesus. Martin Luther said they're despicable, hateful people. Thousands of them should be slaughtered and their blood running. This is Martin Luther. He said, no, not thousands, millions. Millions should be slaughtered in the blood of the streets. It's a quote. That's not taught. So therefore, let's not do what the Jews do. Let's not do the hateful things because they killed Jesus. Jesus had to die for all of us. Yes? Jesus is an aside about the Jews killing Jesus. You know, when Jesus was here, there were... Half the Jewish population lived in Turkey, Greece, and Rome, and Africa. They never heard of him. Why would God blame them? Yes? They never heard of him. It was just localized. In the Galilee, you have to understand that most of the Jewish people in Israel did not know Jesus. Most. This was all verbal by mouth. There's a lot of people that knew him. Are you with me? How can we blame all of the Jewish people for killing Jesus? It makes no sense. Who killed Jesus? Who? We did. Yes! So that he can cleanse us and we can be one with him. We did it. Indeed, God does not change. His Shabbat is forever. His truth is truth. Then, now, and forever.